You know, when we get when we do the group pressure, I'll change my pants. I did bring a pair of jeans. You could leave the pants. I, I think <laughs> waist up. I think for, so, waist for up. social media, the pants are going to play. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of pants, pants are you play? wearing? Uh, Michael is working from home at work. <laughs> from the office. Yeah. 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 Things no. don't change as much as you think. Right? Michael is the real hybrid. Robin <laughs> bought me these pants. These are they're nice pants. Yeah, I like them. They're more than $19. They're really flattering. They're, they're really, more than $19. <laughs> they, they, they really show off your No, figure. they bring out my calves. Different level. What was that? You said you're bringing business casual to a different level. Love it. Let's see what we got going on here. So it's been two, two straight weeks of good Thursdays in terms of markets. It would have been like five weeks in a row of like terrible Thursday afternoons. Oh, wait. That's that's right. I that. Last week was good. I think the week before that was good. Now we're rolling. Back to, we're back, back to, to Thursday afternoon. Thursday is bullish now. No, 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 no. No, Thursday afternoon. We roll over. over. We're rolling over. We've got CPI tomorrow. Yeah. So is, probably is, not good. Is, well, no, it's not going to be good. At this point, is it just like all energy? I mean, that's what we focus on most of the time. Yeah. The, the fundamentals are so good there. I that's mean, what he, wa he yeah. wants. He was saying he's the only person that when he goes to the gas station... He's rooting for higher prices. You're such a, you're an anti-patriot. What do we call those people? Traders? You're a trader. Richer than a year ago. So <laughs> than a year ago. Fair enough. Listen, that was, that was a, some, that was a lean year, 2021. The price of oil went negative. 2020. Yeah. It sucked. Yeah. It no sucked kidding. big time. Yeah. Because you guys, you guys are doing what? Uh, well, we're pipeline. So we're midstream. Yeah. But this, so we don't drill for oil. Right. But pipeline stocks got crushed as well. You know, because those are the customers, oh, yeah. right? and there was demand destruction. There was less oil and gas being consumed in the United States as well. Right? So, <laughs> down was a long way. Yeah. But you know, energy has a long cycle. So, I was telling some guys earlier on here. We, we have a mutual fund. We started 2014. Uh, the peak in the energy sector, naturally. When else would you start one, right? Yeah. But we'd had a six-year cycle up to that point, and we had probably a six-year down cycle from 14 to 20. These cycles are long, right? Yeah. We're only Your back test going into 2014, though, must look great. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Simon, yeah. not to brag, in 2020, shortly after oil went negative, I bought Exxon at 35 and I sold it for like 45, something like that. Oh, brilliant. No, you only missed 65. <laughs> now, it's at, now it's at 105. <laughs> That's very on brand for you, though, I feel yeah. like, right? That's <laughs> I okay. bought it here, I sold it here, I was like, woohoo! Michael's very on brand. He buys the trade of the lifetime, but he's in it for the first. You know, we had a, a, a trader we used to cover years ago when I was a broker. We called him the bus driver, right? Because he'd buy something and he'd hold it for $3 and then he'd let go. Like I'm the bus jump driver. on the bus, two the stop, bus jump off, right? I'm afraid to make money in stocks. That's what it is. Yeah, I've, I've been burned too many times. Ah, you know, <laughs> keep the faith, man. <laughs> anyway, this is my director of research. So, oh right, <laughs> you got a CFA? You must have a CFA. Of right? course, of course. I'd throw him right out of this building if he didn't. I check it every time he shows up. Listen, in sweatpants. Uh, Knowing and trading are two separate things, right? That is so true. Because I, mean, I used to trade. I'm an investor now, yeah. but I still trade. Yeah. I trade euro dollar futures actually because yeah. that's what I used to. Why trade. do you do it for fun or or because you think you're going to make money? No, I make money at it. Yeah, but only in oh, the you last. Oh, you do to make money. That's interesting. Yes, yes. Well, but you need a lot <laughs> right, of humility. You need a lot of humility. There was nothing to do in interest rates for 15 years, mm. right? They were close to zero for a long time. Now there's a lot of interesting stuff in the yield curve. So that's what I did years ago. I used to run interest rate risk trading at J.P. Morgan, and that's what I used to do. So that's a little bit of that going on, on the side. But my business is energy. That's what we. Were you trading on. for? Were you working at J.P. Morgan in New York? Yes. Okay. Where? I'm here 40 years. Is that right? Last month. When are you going to lose America. the accent? 
I, you know, I. Some people think I've lost. It, it. sounds real in England. They think I've lost the accent. Okay. It sounds real. Why do you sound like a Yank, Simon? You know, hell, <laughs> really? They think I just got off the boat over there. I think after like twelve years old, whatever your accent is, your accent. I think it's. Really, I think so. I mean, look, I. Th- you know what? There's certain things, I, and I'm not going to say you know pass the ketchup because you'll look at me like say that again, Simon. Yeah, so yeah. we do pass the ketchup, and there's certain words. Elevator, vacation, sidewalk. Right? But it's not hard, right? You want people to listen to you, not sort of. Just be sort of puzzled by you. Right. But no, I mean, it would take an effort. So I, have, I couldn't talk like you if I wanted to. How yeah, could I ever do that? You don't want to. So I have one of the most easily identifiable Long Island accents, like within one second. Yeah, know I know you're there without even putting the video on. Yeah. So I, I don't talk like you. How'd that happen? I don't know. It's well, a good that's, question. It's not I'm, old, over I'm older than you, I think. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> so I got pulled over. I was on my jet ski in in the bay. Like we we live on a town that's on the water. On Long Island. So like I walked to right. my marina. Nice. So I'm on my jet ski with my son. It's like Memorial Day weekend. It's opening weekend. So every idiot is on their watercraft. They're on their boats. Oh, they're on their. Oh, yeah, yeah. So what happens is the bay constable comes out in force that weekend just to let everybody see them. It's like the police boats. Pulls you over, checks they, your papers. They just want to. They just want you to know, hey, we're here this summer too. So they laid. They right. like. Uh, they lay down the law. So I get pulled over. Of course, I'm doing eight miles an hour in a five mile an hour zone. Oh. Like literally, that's what they're up to. Right. Because it was it was early enough in the day that weren't a lot of people. To, he's to, six, Yeah, but he's sixty percent over the legal limit. Yeah. No, no, listen, they were not kidding around. So it's a boat. It's two guys on a boat dressed in full uniform. There's, there's lights flashing. It's the real shit. Oh, jeez. So the guy pulls me over, and he's like gesturing to me. You have to pull over to his boat and grab onto the side of his boat so he can talk to you. Okay. But the guy, like, it occurred to me halfway through him talking, he had a southern accent. I, I live in New York. Yeah. This guy's like, come on, son. Come on. Pull, pull on alongside my boat. Let's talk. And I'm like, wait. If you become a cop, do you automatically just – get a southern accent like where the <laughs> hell is this coming from you know fighter pilots do right yeah chuck Yeager, remember so right so uh, they all sound like chuck yeager yeah, pilots yeah, yeah so all right folks we're uh yeah all right so this that's guy, a good point so so this guy okay, right? this guy for 10 minutes berated me in front of my son about doing eight miles oh. an hour in a five mile and uh the entire time not breaking out of this like southern state trooper accent it was the oddest thing did he say meow no, no, no. I want you him to. He must have said you all. Like no, it. but he was like, come on. Come on. Let's talk about it. Here's what I need you to do. Take out your registration. You got a pretty good accent. Yeah, yeah. Did he get a ticket? That is good. Thank you. Did he get a ticket? No, I didn't get a ticket because if he gave me a ticket, I probably would have escalated the situation <laughs> and made him look ridiculous. For what I understood why he did it. I didn't like the way the other guy on the back of the boat was staring at my kid. My kid right. is a, a child. Yeah. But anyway, it was a very weird encounter. But I just said, like, maybe as soon as you get your badge, you automatically just start talking with, with a southern accent. I maybe that's it. I can't figure it out. Other than I'm on the south shore of Long Island. I, I, have, I have a 30-second jet ski story. Last week I went out and my jet ski is at my brother's house. And I went to see if the papers were in the machine because to Josh's point, the Bay Constable are everywhere and they're going to pull you over and give right. you tickets yeah. if, if the young papers. So – the papers are on the machine. I called him like, where are the papers? Where are the papers? I found the papers. They're in the house. So I have the papers. I've got like sunscreen. I've got like my hands are full and I'm bringing my phone, my wallet, my keys, whatever to the, to the dock. And I did see the Bay Constable. Yeah. I'm behind him. I'm like waving, like pull me over. I dare you. I've got my papers. I'm good. I'm good. 
And I came back uh, when I came back and I pulled my jet ski and I realized that I left the papers on the dock. Oh, shit. You would have you written you up. It was the only thing that I did not put in the so jet ski. So you need boating safety security uh, certificate, which Title. is like a little card when you pass the, the test. Yeah. Okay. You need registration for the thing yeah. so they know you didn't steal it. And then they want a New York State driver's license, which I didn't know. Oh, wow. Jersey doesn't need the driver's license. I mean, I have my boating license. Yeah. And you have to take the safety class to get the license. So right, I just right. need the permit. And they- we just bought a boat. Ooh. And I've never owned a boat. Not to break. Not, yeah, right. <laughs> so that'll be interesting, right? And we still don't have it, right? Because like everything else, it's on back order, right? Yeah. So we're supposed well, to get an 8-4. If you like high life. gas prices, go fill the boat up. You'll be, uh, you'll, yeah, you'll, yeah, you'll be, you'll yeah. give it a standing ovation. I have a picture, Dan, in Naples on the dock there. Some guy had filled up his boat and it showed the wretches of $2,400. Oh my gosh. And this was in January. Oh yeah. my gosh. So it'd probably be $3,600 now. I think, I actually think today or tomorrow we're going to pass $5 at a national average for the first time. It's close, right? Yeah. I just paid five sixty yesterday, man. Uh, we just spoke about this. Bank of America did this thing where people who make under $50,000 tend to spend 10% of their cards Ten percent of the card spending is on gas. If you're over one hundred twenty-five thousand, I think it's like five or six percent. That was back in April, and prices are up twenty percent since then. Yeah, it's I getting mean, really bad. In the seventies, I think we reached six percent of disposable income on energy, and it's around three and a half to four now. So people say, "Where's demand destruction?" Yeah. You know, we're getting there. Don't but say it, it. Doesn't have to be one twenty. <laughs> I think it's closer to one eighty than one twenty, based on that history. People are complaining. One eighty a like, barrel is what at the pump. Seven six fifty. I feel like it's like yeah, exponential. probably something like. That. I feel like it's exponential. You don't think people have already changed their habits? You don't think no, there's some, any demand? No, some. It's not a. It's not a binary issue, right? Yeah. Some people will, but in terms of when you'll really see it in consumption, people pulling back. At least that's what it took six percent in the seventies. One eighty. They're going to impeach Joe Biden. Yeah, that will not be good. There, I mean, that will not be politically. Good. I mean, yeah. they were already in huge trouble in the midterm. All right, John, we yes. starting the show. There's nothing he can do. Michael heard Biden. He's had enough chit chat. He's had enough. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. All right, John. This is episode fifty. Oh my god, Epis- episode fifty. Welcome to the Compound and Friends. All opinions expressed by me, Michael Batnick, and our castmates are solely our own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Today's show is brought to you by Direction. We're highlighting the Direction Breakfast Commodity Strategy. ETF BRKY is the symbol. Josh, on today's show with Mr. Simon Leck, we spoke a lot about inflation core and otherwise, which by the way, by the time the show is released, we will have the numbers. What, what are your thoughts? Well, I think what's interesting is we, we end up showing a chart about how gold has done a terrible job hedging inflation, not just versus inflation, but versus all other commodities. And this is a commodities related ETF, right? This is the, yes, this is the first year in, I don't know. It's been a while. It's been a while since commodities have shined and 2022 is the year of the commodity. So what exactly is in uh, BRKY? Uh, it's got, it's corn, it's wheat, it's, it's sugar, it's hogs. It's basically whatever you put on your breakfast table. So the ticker is BRKY if you are interested in learning more. Ladies and gentlemen, the compound of friends. Boy, do we have a treat for you guys today. Welcome to the show. This is the Compound and Friends. My name is Josh Brown, here with Michael Batnick, as always. Hello. Duncan's here. How are you feeling, Duncan? 
Feeling good. Got your hat on backwards. Is that like an intimidation thing? What's going on? Yeah, that's exactly. Yeah. All yeah. right. Nicole's in the house. John's here. What's up, guys? All right. We. Can I get a little more yeah, low energy? Jeez. Woo, episode fifty. There we go. Yeah. All right. Good job, Nicole. All right. And you're wearing a Ranger shirt. Yes. What's uh What's the series at now? Or, game five tonight. I'm going. Game, oh, game wow. five. All right. Yeah. Awesome. Enjoy. Enjoy. Bank account is hurting. <laughs> All right. But it'll be worth it. It's about experiences. That's right. Uh, we have a special treat for you guys today. Simon Lack is here. Simon, say hi to everybody. Hi, everybody. Great to be here. All right. You guys can't see this unless you're watching us on YouTube, um, but I'm getting heavy Bowie vibes. Do you get oh, my that? God. Do you get that from anybody? Yes, Bowie vibes. In the most complimentary way possible. I'm getting very- I'll take it. I'm getting heavy Bowie vibes. I've been called worse. The I'll eyes, the hair, you're you're in good shape. Very, very I, heavy I, I, Bowie I'm vibes. I'm going to brand that. All right. We'll add that to our blog. All right. So Simon brought his guitar. He's going to do some stuff off of- uh, uh, Aladdin Sane, maybe, uh, shortly after my intro. But you, so you've got a pretty uh, interesting career because you've done a number of things. You've been around for a long time. We're going to talk about SL Advisors, which you founded in 2009. Yep. Um, but let's go back a little bit prior to that. Uh, you spent 23 years at J.P. Morgan, sat on the investment committee. You founded the J.P. Morgan Incubator Funds, and you ran – the North American fixed income derivatives and FX trading business. That's like a lot of different things or not necessarily. Well, the interest rate trade, yeah, that was my day job. That yeah. was most of my time doing. But what we found was in FX in the early 90s, we had a lot of hedge funds as clients, right? And people weren't really investing in hedge funds apart from high net worth investors. And so my boss thought, wow, why do we see the hedge funds that make money in FX with us, like the guys who we lay off the trades immediately, and maybe we should invest some money with them. Mm. And so out of that became this investment portfolio, not with client money, just with prop capital in hedge funds. So in the early 90s, I got to meet, you know, some very, very talented hedge fund managers. And it was so cool because there's no boring meetings with a hedge fund manager. Yes. But in those days, everything it seemed obscure. You talk to some guy doing convertible bond arbitrage and, it, you know, and it's Cayman and, you know, leverage. And it sounds complicated and risky. And it was, but it was a very small industry and there were lots of inefficiencies. And so they generated really good returns. You must have run into guys like Tudor and- uh, Yeah, and Paul Jones. Is he Englander? Is he? Is he? He yeah. was a- I that's mean, millen you know, That's millennium. Millennium. You could sell tickets to meet with Izzy. Yeah. I mean, he had the most wonderful expressions. He, uh, tell me, you'll have to block this out. No, you're good to go. Out. No, we're not so going to block Izzy's anything talking out. about a trader and he's saying, and this trader is trading bigger and bigger positions, making money. And then the god of size visited him, <laughs> and he got his tits twisted. And you're going, and yeah. Izzy cuts out traders like you cut out positions. Like you know, it's fine. You make money, you lose money. Out. Well, Ken, Ken but, Griffin's that way. Steve right. Cohen's that way. I'm picking up a. I'm picking up a through line. Yeah, uh, yeah. I guess in that line of work, there's no time. You know the answer is if you're going to panic, panic immediately. Yeah, slow panicking is bad. But anyway, that was a fascinating time, and so. Out of that, meeting hedge fund managers, the thing is, when I met a hedge fund manager, the first thing I'm thinking, he's talking about his strategy and what he does, and I'm thinking, how much money are you making? That's the first thing. What's that? To and you can work it out, right? They'll show you. You give me a little table, assets every year, two and 20. You can do the math in your head, right? And so that got me sort of really interested in that. So that's why I started the incubator funds, which is really to be like a VC investor in hedge funds, find new hedge funds. So you become a G, you become a GP, not an LP. We'd own a piece of the GP. That's where the, the money is. Right? Wait, so inside the bank? 
Yes, but that was with client capital. Then we went out and raised money. I, I went with the private bank all over the world raising money for that. So then we'd own a piece of the GP. So then we want hedge fund managers that can grow. So it's not obviously the return's got to be good, but you want a scalable strategy as well. And so that was great. I mean, we did, you know, you, we looked at 3,500 proposals over several years. Oh, my God. We did 13. But in venture capital, you've got to look at everything. Otherwise, you don't know where the market is, right? So, okay. So, so you've also written several books. And I think we have at least one of them up on the shelf. I don't, Michael, we, so we have the Hedge Fund Mirage here? Probably. Or, probably. Yeah. We've, we've read all your stuff. Um, the Hedge Fund Mirage, I think, is the one that you're most well-known for. Yes, that was the first one I did. Because the thing that struck me is that if you looked at all of the money ever invested in hedge funds, the average dollar in hedge funds, this was by about 2013, 14, it was zero. The average investor. Now, hedge fund proponents will show you returns, annual returns over time. And in the early years, they were really good. But there weren't that many clients. So in other words, the investors made a lot of money. They just weren't that numerous. Yeah. And then like everything else, right, money follows performance. They got too big. And in 2008, the, the industry lost more than the money they'd all made in history. That's, inc- that's an incredible. Incredible, right? They wiped everything out. Because right? they had t- taken in the most amount of money. Because they'd gotten up from to $2 trillion. to 07. They had $2 trillion. Yeah. They were down 25%. They lost half a trillion dollars. They never made half a trillion dollars before that, right? Do you think a fair rebuttal would be, because the, the data is what it is, right? but maybe people that invest in hedge funds, it allows them to take more risk with the rest of their portfolio, even if the returns are not what they had hoped? Well, I don't know if it does. If the, ret- if the average dollar's lost money, then it's just a negative returning asset. The issue there is that people understood that small hedge funds do better than big ones. And they understand that early stage investing makes uh, more sense. Any hedge fund you look at had good returns yeah. when, it was, when it was small. But they forget- That's for the how it industry, got big. That's how it got big, right? Yeah. It was good when it was small. That's how it got big but they don't apply the same thing to the industry. And, you know, hedge funds used to be exploiting inefficiencies like convertible up, right? Yeah. There's only so many dollars to take out of that market, right? It's not infinite, right? And as they got big, they started to make macro bets, just directional trades on equities. And so they lost that sort of exploiting inefficiencies piece. And hedge fund managers get that. You'd be amazed how many hedge fund people. When I wrote that book, so I was in the hedge fund business. I'm a critic of hedge funds. People say, you must have lost all your friends there. I had so many hedge fund managers call me up and say, I read your book and it, you're, you're brilliant. You're absolutely right. Hedge funds suck. Well, except mine, obviously, right? But all the others, there's too but much mediocrity. Out. Your book came out right around the same time uh, as The Bet with Warren Buffett. Was that 2010? When was that? When did they do that? Didn't they do that before? Was that, was that it was before the down, right before I the downturn? That, wasn't it like, and he was a fund of hedge funds. Yes. Great, yes. great guy. Now yes. he's a, a, now he's a, a podcast superstar. Right. But he, uh, he made that bet. And I, I think when your book came out, you probably got more heat from fund of funds people and yes. consultants than from individual managers because the individual managers don't want there to be 5,000 hedge funds. The individual managers agreed. It was the consultants. That's right. And they're the real villains, right? I mean, I don't blame any hedge fund manager for saying I'm the best hedge fund. Now. Everybody thinks they've got the best business, right? Yeah. So why shouldn't a hedge fund manager? But the consultants who said, oh, you know, Hedge funds are the answer. We'll help you pick those hedge funds. They're selling the asset class. And you need a diverse set of hedge funds. You know, the the thing is, if you pick hedge funds and the average return is going to be bad, you need to be really good at picking hedge funds. And if that's true, don't pick too many hedge funds. 
diversification in that scenario actually works against you, right? If you have skill at manager selection, the more you pick, the more you dilute that. Pick three. Right. So that means you don't put 10% of hedge funds. You put 2% of hedge funds. My right? earlier point was that for the average person that or the average institution that's investing in hedge funds is that 10, 20% of their portfolio, allowing them you to know, ostensibly take more risk with the rest of it because in, in theory, they would be protected from- If a, they a, really are decline. uncorrelated, yes. The point, they, they have to be uncorrelated, particularly in tail events. Right? They have to actually hedge. They have to hedge, right? And yeah. so you still see- when things go down, hedge funds go down too. So, but it's changed. You know, hedge funds are run more conservatively. It's a lot more institutional. It's better transparency. I'm many years out of that. I mean, I re- I follow the industry by reading what we all read, but I, you know, I don't do. I'm not running a hedge fund. I don't deal with hedge funds anymore. One of the things that always occurred to me was that a successful hedge fund that's been around for a while, um, one of two things will probably happen. They're really good. The first thing is they'll buy a football team and fire all the clients and convert to a family office. Or the second thing is, because they've gotten so big and they've taken on so much staff, they'll get really conservative and stop swinging for the fences the way they did when they were a younger yeah, firm. Well, because now it's about, hey, we're already rich. Why, why the hell are we uh, trying to hit home runs all the time? Let's just exist. The management fee it. becomes bigger than the potential 20% performance fee. Of course. And that's just human nature. That's not because they're bad guys. They're smart. They're looking out for themselves. So, you know, a funny thing I've had. So I've sat in hundreds and hundreds of meetings with hedge fund managers. So you sit there with your colleagues. You go through the whole presentation, portfolio construction, security selection, risk management, yada, yada, guy leaves. And you say, what do you think? And you go through this and that. And then you say, yeah, but you know what? He was down last year. Yeah, I didn't really think it was that good. (laughs) Or conversely... (laughs) He had a great year last year. Yeah, I really think it was good. So basically, you know, there's all the data there and everything, but you really don't fully understand what the guy does. So investors invest on performance. Now, the thing about that is that hedge funds generally have what's called negative serial correlation. In other words, a good year is more likely than not followed by a bad year. Why? I, I just mean reversion. I couldn't tell you why. But across the whole industry, that's one of the things I found with the data. So think about this now. The investors are momentum driven, right? They, they want, buy they what's want to going be up, the, right? the best, quote unquote, the best. They're looking at a sector that is fundamentally mean reverting. Momentum investors betting on mean reverting. This is never going to end well, right? That's a bad combination, right? If you're a momentum investor, you want momentum stocks. These are not momentum stocks. So I thought that was kind of so. I had, I looked at a lot of data when I was writing the book, and I thought that was kind of funny. So the book was a, the book was a big hit. Um, then you wrote Bonds Are Not Forever. Yes. which I also read, The Crisis Facing Fixed Income which Investors. Which is very timely now. And Wall Street Potholes. Yeah. When when was that? Bonds are not forever? Oh, 17. 14 or something. Oh, 14. 14 or something. Like Wall Street Potholes was probably 17. Okay. And Insights from Top Managers on Avoiding Dangerous Products is, that's Wall Street Potholes. Yes. Okay. Uh, what Wall Street Potholes, I kind of did a chapter on Wall Street Potholes. I call them murder, murder holes. holes. Um because I was the guy selling this stuff. I was a retail broker. Right. And so part of my re- reformation was just being like, here's all the stuff you should never buy no matter who calls yes, you with it. Yes, uh, and The reformed and, broker, right? So, re- yes. Yeah, so you expanded that into like an actual book though. You did a, a much more in-depth version that I just did a rant. Well, it just struck me because, you know, by then I was running my own business and it, and I, you know, this friend of mine came in to be a client and she was in these non-traded REITs that somebody else had put her in. Murder hole, right, Josh? Murder, n- murder I mean, hole number one, uh, So actually. American capital properties, I think. So it went bankrupt. Yeah. Disgraced. So I'm reading the prospectus on this thing and it's unbelievable. It basically means that 
if you tell the investor how many ways you're going to screw them, but you disclose it in the prospectus, it's okay. Like, we will do related party transactions. We will charge you fees to buy property, manage property, and sell property, even though that's what the business is supposed to do. You know, there's conflicts of interest riddled through the whole bit. But you, you disclose it all. Jason's why, Jason's why okay. writes about that. I was a, a co-branch manager at the last broker dealer I was at, and we had a compliance officer who used to say, all right, so, so the thing called activity letter. So you get a client to sign an activity letter if they want to trade really frequently okay. because otherwise it would look like churning. Right, right And there right. were clients who wanted to trade every day because right. the stock market was not a vehicle for retirement for them. It was their recreation. They enjoyed, they enjoyed being it. in trades. Yeah, okay. So they would find a broker who would be more than happy to do that with them. So it was supposed to be for very, very rare situation. But once word got out, there's a such thing as an activity letter that was like a green light. You know, oh. my client – and this is like 08, 09 when everyone's trading triple leveraged up and down banks, small caps. So you could not do FAZ, FAS with clients without having an activity letter on file. Right. But that's where all the action was. So all of a sudden, as the co-branch manager, I had a stack of activity letters on my desk. <laughs> I said, let me get this straight. Everybody has clients who are an exceptional situation where they're going to – so the compliance officer said that getting a client to sign an activity letter – was like driving through a, a, a parade, but honking your horn, <laughs> right? So, so, right. So there's a lot of like, oh, just disclose it. It's cool. Yeah. Uh, especially you know in what? the traditional brokerage That's true, side. right? Yeah. It should be a good trading market for people who are good at trading because, you know, there's all these measures of volatility and they're all high. But one that I thought was really intuitive is the odds of, a, of the market moving more than 1% in the day, right? So I look back over the last 100 days, more than half the time, the S&P is up or down more than 1%, right? That exists 8% of the time. If you look at these rolling 100-day eight. so we have a, you know, every day. It seems like every day it's moved more than 1%. That's less than a tenth of the time. So that's, that's sort of an intuitive way to think about how volatile. But for trading, if you have skill at trading, and the average person does it, but obviously some do, right? knock yourself out, right? Okay, so let's talk about SL Advisors, and then we'll get into the topics of the week. Um, founded in 2009, you manage investments in energy infrastructure, and you actually publish your own index. It's called the American Energy Independence Index. That's right. Which is tracked by the PACER, American Energy Independence ETF. That's right. USAI. Oh, yep. I didn't know that. So yep. tell us tell us about um, investing in energy infrastructure, what you guys do as a firm, and then tell us about the index. Wait, hold on. Before you do that, Simon, how did this – like how did this happen? How did you go from where you were to starting an energy company? So it's not as big a jump as it sounds like because one of the hedge funds we seeded when I was doing like hedge fund VC, one of them was Alarian Capital Management, right? Alarian is the benchmark. Oh, MLP. The MLP benchmark. Yeah, so I got to know Gabe Hammond and Kenny Feng and everything. And I thought, wow, this is such a cool sector, right? The yields are high. There's a tax break on it. You know, they're Should reliable. be uncorrelated. Should be uncorrelated, right? right? Like high yield bonds, but, you know, less volatile. So I started investing in the sector, in that sector back in 2005. I was at JP Morgan. I put my own money in. Yeah. I was in all of the hedge funds we did, but I invested alongside as well, right? So I really liked the sector. So then I left JP Morgan in 2009, set up our sell It was in its infancy. Right? Like Kinder Morgan was a big stock, yep. but it, it wasn't as well known no. as it eventually became that you could buy pipelines, have, an intru- have, a, a, have a regular dividend payment, 
and the only price you really had to pay was filling out a K-1. Yeah, I mean, of course, people hate the K-1s, and that, there's not many left. There's a handful, but that was always a thing. But, but many the K-1, of them have converted to corporate. They converted because okay. there's not many buyers. The people who buy MLPs with the K-1 are basically old, wealthy Americans, right, because yeah. they've got an accountant who does it. So I was already interested in that sector. So when I set up my business, you know, I started writing a newsletter. I put in investment returns. I'm running this MLP strategy. And people started to be drawn to that. So friends of mine would say, yeah, I love the newsletter, saw the returns, you know, put me in. So I, I started out my business with friends of Simon, self-directed high net worth investors. And even today, we don't say we're your whole solution. You know, somebody could have $50 million and they say, I want to give you three. We'll give you three for this. Job. Okay, fine. You do whatever you do want. Do you work with firms like ours? Do any RIAs allocate to you guys as like a, an SMA strategy? We have some. We okay. have some. Yeah. So that, that we seems like a that. smart thing for you to pursue maybe. If- yeah. I mean, we just tried to be narrow and deep, right? Just try and be good at one or two things. So we focused on that SMA strategy. Then we started a mutual fund, the Catalyst Energy Infrastructure Fund, started in 2014. And then we did USAI in uh, 2018. And so the mutual fund is with Catalyst. We wanted to have an ETF. And so the way to do that was passive. We actively managed the mutual fund. The ETF is passive, so design the index. And then we found Pacer, who are a terrific firm. So Pacer does the distribution for the ETF, yeah. and we produce the index. Huge firm. Not, not that many people know the firm, but their products are, are fairly well known. Yeah, uh, yeah. Joe Thompson, Sean O'Hara, they're good guys. The, yeah, yeah, they've grown tremendously. Yes, yeah. very good, yeah. very good. Yeah, they've got Cows, which is a cash flow. Uh, it's probably the hot, hottest they're, ETF of the year. They're not, they're not the sponsor yeah. of this show, though, so we're going to stop talking about yeah. that. <laughs> uh, all right, you're the perfect guest for this week. There was just this incredible, uh, extensively reported piece at the Journal about Tiger Global, and uh, I think it plays really well into your area of expertise just because it's like – I think it's become the epitome of a certain type of hedge fund that had become very popular in the last couple of years. A lot of people tried to imitate what they were doing. The crossover. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, just the idea that like, all right, a lot of these companies see their biggest gains before they hit the, the public market. Sure. So if yeah. we're serious about capturing the returns in this asset class – we can't just wait post-IPO. We have to get to these things early. And that's a good idea. Like that makes obvious – it makes intuitive sense to anybody that's paying attention. Um, but like most things taken to an extreme, uh, it could become a bad idea. Well, well they, every, should, they shouldn't have the privates. Yeah, they shouldn't have the privates in the hedge fund vehicle because somebody's getting disadvantaged, right? Because when you value a private company – you don't have a precise point like you do with the stock, right? You really think it's in this range. So then you say it's conservatively valued, right? For who? If you value it low, it's conservatively valued if you're trying to get out of the hedge fund. But if you value it here, it's conservative to people coming in. So somebody's getting screwed there. When the oh, money's- you think it's – oh, so you don't think it's a good idea. You think it's an inherent conflict for a public market investor, hedge fund, mutual fund – to also be in the private market. Yeah, I don't think, if it's like one or 2%, I guess it doesn't matter. But the valuation is always going to disadvantage somebody. So are you saying it should be two different funds? Yeah, a private equity fund should hold private equity. And if you're going to be daily liquidity, like a 40-act fund, or if you're going to be a hedge fund with 30-day liquidity or 90-day, you should be in public equities. So what do you say when you see, forget hedge funds, when you see Fidelity, T. Rowe Price start to incorporate more private securities for the reasons that I stated, like they, they're trying to capture the opportunity for but their shareholders. But they're doing it much smaller. I, I mean, mean it's, if it's a small percentage, it really doesn't matter. But then okay. why bother if it's small? Yeah. But somebody's getting disadvantaged there, right? Mm-hmm. So you can't have conservative valuation 
of private equity in a public vehicle, right? Because it can't be conservative in both ways. So if wanna, you value it low- but, but hypothetically, you invest in a private company at a $10 billion valuation. It's 2020. The thing comes public at a $30 billion valuation. How, who, who is disadvantaged? Doesn't everybody no, win? The exit, obviously, that's fine. But along the way, you value it at 10, and you say, no, we're conservative, value it at 10. But meantime, the actual value is probably moving up. New money comes in. That new money you comes in dilutes. Investment, yeah. Well, you can't though, can you? You no. probably can't. So then the early investors in that fund are diluted at $10 billion when maybe the price should be edging up, but they're doing uh, quarterly revaluation, right? I never thought about it that way. So they're conservative from the point of view, if you're getting out of the mutual fund, yes, that's hurting you. But new money coming in dilutes you. So what do they do? So they value it at 20. Well, now that's going to disadvantage the other people the other way around, right? Then that disadvantages the people coming in as opposed to the ones that Does are there. Does it disadvantage them only on paper, though, in terms of the IRR or in actual dollar terms it disadvantages them? No, in them? dollar terms. In do- the point is with a private equity investment, you don't have a point valuation. Yes, as an accounting matter, you do. Right. But you don't really know the value precisely, except when they've just done a funding round, right? Mm. So you you value it somewhere within some range, and it's imprecise. And the imprecision is going to hurt either people coming in the fund or people exiting, depending on where it's biased. There was another article in Bloomberg talking about D1 Capital Partners, who this – I think it was the, this guy Sundheim, who I think came from Viking or Fortress, I can't remember – was talking about that they were taking loans and JP Morgan was the, the loan originator, but I think it was a consortium of banks that came right, in. Right, they would have sold so it. So they had leverage to, to buy even more private companies. And what they originally did was they they let investors come into the fund and, and tell them, we want 10% of our investment to be in private markets. We want 20. And, and it got to the point where they were even letting people just go either 50-50 or all the way up to 100% privates. Yeah. I mean, you know, generally these are institutions, right? So they're big enough to know to get a good advice. And so I wouldn't do it because I think there's not enough transparency. But there's obviously, if you want to do that and you trust the manager, you can do that. But I think it's, somebody gets hurt, right? So when, so, when things go down, it doesn't work out. And they say, why did we do that? How did we let that happen? Right? So so back to Tiger, uh, basically, they've they've compounded at a very high rate for 20 years. Right. They, uh, Chase Coleman has just been this like hugely talented. One, yeah, right. like Tom, like Tom Brady, almost. Yes, almost yes. looks well, like they're analogy. one of the pioneers getting American investments into China, and so we're early on all of those Chinese yeah. tech and yeah. absolutely right. crushed. So, it. so, so if yeah. you're an allocator, they check every box. They have a long history, the pedigree, the Tiger Cubs. Uh, they <laughs> and they made so much money. They made a ton. Right. They t- made a ton and of money. They have actually made cash, even though they've had great returns when they were small. I read somewhere they'd given out, I don't know, many, many billions of dollars that they've yeah. actually returned to people. Yeah. So fine. Let's give them they've the made, right. So they've, no so, doubt. Right. So they've done, they've done an incredible job. Right. Nobody, could, nobody could say otherwise. Um, but, but they get up to $23 billion by the end of 2021, and then they cut the fund in half in the first six months well, of this I year. Think, I think you could easily argue that they're a victim of their own success because everybody was copying them, right? Right. And everybody was trying to do deals faster with less stringent terms because Tiger was outsourcing a lot of the investment uh, but, research but, to Bain. But wait hold a on. minute. These hold, are smart people. Wait, hold on. And and Tiger was basically, not no strings attached, but they, they didn't want board seats. They didn't want to tell you how to run your business. Mm-hmm. They were outsourcing the due diligence and they were moving faster than everybody else. And obviously they were very bright and talented people. And then everybody tried to copy and the valuation just kept going up and up and up and up. 
I mean, almost anything on Wall Street that works gets too much money anyway, because people are always going to be following in a company. And that's a big problem for any hedge fund manager is $23 billion is different than managing two, right? And how do you, how do you do it? How do you, how do you manage differently? It's hard. It's really hard. As is, and as talented as he is, you know, that's a tough thing to do. Right? What were you going to say? Well, no, I was going to say you can't have that much brain power and not know that historically higher rates were going to be a challenge for stocks trading at 100 times sales. Like you can't really right. not know that. Right. So they obviously know that. So how could, how could, how could people this brilliant go right off a cliff harder than anybody else? Wait. Could they just not believe it would be possible that rates would go Wait, up? How, how, who, if, 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 if these allocators knew a year and a half ago that the tenure would go from one, three to three, I think all of them would say, yeah, I don't want to invest in Tiger. Not, a year, not a year and a half ago, though. Whatever. But the Fed comes out and says, I mean, gonna, October, that's when it really started to look like. So, okay. So as like, recently as the fall, the Fed was talking about three rate hikes for this year. Right. And then obviously things started to change rapidly. It happened pretty January, quickly. February. Yes. It happened from pretty the fall, quickly. Right. But but still, cut the fund in half, like not not have hedges or anything that could offset that. I mean, we that thought inflation really extreme. We launched an inflation fund in the summer of last year, just because of all the stimulus. Good I timing. Mean, we didn't need that one point nine call trillion. Me, so I'm just going to. It's not too late. All right, all right. We didn't need that one point nine trillion, right? On top well, of that we was already poli- had was political a, in March 2021. I mean, this is the thing. In the old days, the Fed would have seen we had a vaccine, right, in the fall of 2020, and then they did another stimulus plan. The, you know, previous Fed heads, you know, Greenspan would have said, okay, let's lean against that. Let's sort of, you know, anticipate. And today's Fed is reactionary, right? They wait until they see things change. Like even the other day, Lael Brannard said, uh, well, you know, unless we see inflation coming down, we're going to keep raising rates. I mean, it takes a year to 18 months for rate hikes to have an impact. How can they say we've got to wait for it to come down? They're supposed to anticipate where it's going to be. But they are very reactive. They, they love that term, data dependent. I have yet to see that be successful for them. They were tightening into a trade war in uh, 2018, um, crashed the stock market twice that year, and then completely about-faced – then they were cutting. Then they were cutting rates. They've been very. They've been very. Bad. How is data, data dependence not helping? What they have done really successfully, though, is get everybody a job. And you know, two years ago in Jackson Hole, they had that symposium and they reinterpreted their mandate in a subtle but really important way, where they favor employment. And you'll even see if you read through. You know, I read everything they put out. The minutes and they, they'll talk about minority unemployment. Yeah, and which is around six percent now, right? It's always high, right? And keeping minority unemployment low is a good thing. Everybody's in favor of that. It's just not clear that's the Fed's job, right? How, how is monetary policy supposed to affect one group versus another? I have another? to tell you, I don't think everybody's in favor of that. I think there are people who would never say this out loud, but they would prefer to have a recession and to have higher minority employment to this. And by this, I mean um, the cost of running their business being – being really yeah, high. Maybe, People are maybe. pissed off right now. Yes. So yeah. our colleague Ben Carlson did a post on timing uh, timing the economy versus timing the stock market, obviously both of which are pretty impossible to do. But one of the charts in there was that seven out of 10 Republicans think we're in a recession now. Uh, 43% of Democrats and about a half of independents. So you could understand why seven out of 10 Republicans yeah. – I so, mean, we're obviously not. The data shows we're not. But I do think we have a greater tolerance for inflation because no Fed chair has ever talked about minority unemployment. 
and we have you know 105% debt to GDP. And the way you deal with that is you have negative real rates and you allow inflation to gradually erode the value of what you owe. And that was what I wrote about in Bonds Not Forever before COVID, because the debt was on this bad path for you know almost our entire careers, right, with a brief uh, period with Clinton when it wasn't, right? And so we have too much debt. And for centuries, governments have dealt with that by inflation sort of eroding that. And I think we'll have tolerance for that because I don't think we'll have tolerance for, you know, it's fair enough inflation is at eight. That's too high. Inflating away the debt, which is a fixed number. It's, it's, it's happened it's, post-World War II. It's a good – exactly. Totally right, right? We had a cap on interest rates because we had all this debt after World War II came back down because 8, 8% is too high inflation, right? But I'm telling you, once it gets down to 4 and then it's like, okay, the Fed's still raising rates to get it down to two. Do we really need to do that? The economy's already slowing down a lot. You know, minority unemployment is up at 8% now. You're going to see them pause. And we will sort of get used to 3 to 4%. Because the thing, you know, Bill Dudley. But are, they, but are they saying, they're saying that minority unemployment is more cyclical or more sensitive no, to. It's permanently higher than the average. And it probably goes up a little more. It probably minorities, I think, suffer more in a recession. Yeah. And so they'll look at that. It's not what they lead with, obviously, right? But they look at that. And so the thing about inflation, and you know, Bill Dudley is is a um, very smart guy, friend of mine, belongs to my golf club, and we chat about this a lot. He writes, you know, he's always criticizing the Fed. And the real issue is, you want stable inflation. If we all know it's going to be three and a half. We can plan for that. The problem is if you don't know. So I I wanted to ask you about exactly that. Uh, Krugman wrote in the Times this this weekend that it's really just a curiosity of history that we all agree that 2% is the right number. Like where where did the Fed get 2% and why is it so important that we get back there? And the only thing that he can come up with is it's about the Fed's credibility. They say that 2% is the number, therefore we all accept it. And that's and so he's, why do we structurally need it to be 2%? Of course, there's nothing, there's no mathematical identity there. The lower inflation, the easier it is to keep it stable. But I don't think there's some sort of sudden point where we say, oh, if it's at four, you've got no control right. at all. Right. And people like Krogan making that point, obviously he's on the liberal side yeah. of the debate, but that will start to gain more importance as the unemployment rate drifts back up and the economy slows. You know, the Fed can only act with support, right? And today Biden's saying, yeah, inflation's a problem, the Fed's going to raise rates. But, you know, there won't... Can the, that, can the Fed say, guys, by the way, three is the number? Stable, but three, not two? They could. They could. I mean, they're not going to do that now, but they, yeah. they could do. I, it'll take some years to play out. But I think we will all collectively get comfortable that, you know, it's getting it down to two is sort of too much of a heavy lift. Yeah. Let's be happy with this three to four. So what do you think they should do? Do you think they're not going quickly enough with 50? Well, it depends. What what should they do? If their goal was to keep inflation down, obviously they were 18 months too late. They should be selling mortgages, right? They should be auctioning off mortgages. They should never been in the mortgage market. You see, Power, um, uh, Bernanke showed his QE brilliantly in the financial crisis because everybody said this will be inflation. But he's a smart guy and the plumbing was was frozen and he understood to use it. But then QA, QE just became, okay, that's just one of our tools. Now every recession we're going to use QE. They were rolling out new QE like yeah, uh, seasons of Yeah, it was only appropriate for, yeah, yeah. The, for the great financial crisis, right? Yeah. We didn't need it with COVID. So buying mortgages is partly why there's a housing bubble because the government has been underwriting about a third of all the mortgages in the country. Now they should be, you know, this QT, quantitative tightening, 
They're not really aggressive, right? They're, They're letting things roll off. Roll off. Right. Letting stuff roll off doesn't really well, make Well, what would difference. happen if they started selling? I think, you know, they give people fair warning and say, we're going to start selling mortgages in six months and we're going to auction, you know, 20 billion a month. The market would absorb that and mortgage yields would move up somewhat. But that's, you know, that's a hot part of the market, which, by the way, they don't even measure housing inflation because they've got this quirky thing, owner's equivalent rent, yeah. which is how they measure housing inflation. So we all know housing's up 20% over the last year. They think it's up about 4 they're not in the same world that we're in. And there's complicated reasons, you know, why they believe that. So they should be selling mortgages. They should be thinking about selling treasuries, although that's a little complicated because they've got to coordinate with the treasury itself. And they that, should that, have been that, earlier. That part of it is tricky, though, measuring housing prices, because two-thirds of the country already owns a home, right? So it's even though prices could be up 20% nationally, it's not like everybody's buying a new house. No, but the cost of living in a – the cost of shelter – is generally the cost of owning a home for most households, right? So owner's equivalent rent, which is how the Fed measures it, or the Bureau of Labor Statistics, they survey people, what could you rent your home for? Because the idea is that a house is an asset and shelters the service, and they want to separate the two out, right? So they want to know what... But we don't know, right? Mm. I mean, none of us know what we could... You know what you could rent your house for? I mean, I, I haven't looked at what... You would have to put it up for rent on, on the internet. But and, you don't. But say, if somebody calls you and, and says, hey, Josh, what can you rent your house for? You'd say, I don't know, six I didn't realize payment. how unstatistical that statistic was. Well, it's a it's very like sort of... Book-y. It's a Economists love it, right? Because they're measuring what they precisely want. It's just that that isn't how America works, right? I mean, if it was in Germany, where most people rent, there's not a lot of owner-occupied housing, that's fine. But Anglo-Saxon countries, people own them. So it's a dumb idea. So what it means is that, so that number moves very slowly because people's perception of what they could rent their house for moves quite slowly. So they look at this OER and they say, oh, housing inflation is not really moving that much, even though we all know something totally different. So they miss that as well. And they cause that by buying mortgages as well as treasury bonds. I, it's the part that Michael and I have said on the show before. It's the part that I least understand the, the need to do that. What So I understood originally when the first pandemic relief was coming down the pike, it seemed like an obvious thing to do. Um, well, we didn't know, right? The first few months. We didn't months. know we were going to have a housing boom as a result right, of COVID. Right. Okay, so we did. And then it became apparent by the fall of 2020. And they were going through the that, summer, right? holy shit, this going. is the greatest housing market right, ever. Right. At that point, like- Job is done. Our job nobody, is done. Nobody, yes. can, nobody would think to back, say, right? we'll, ke- we'll keep supporting the treasury market yeah, for say, liquidity. Hey, it works. Right. But we're going to stop with the housing stuff. But now, of course, that's an inflation perspective, right? But they've got a dual mandate. So you ask me, do I think they've done a bad job? What should they do? They have achieved that employment objective. I mean, I actually think that today's they've economy- They've overachieved it. They've overachieved it, yes. I think today's economy in a year's time, we'll look back and say, geez, those are good old days, right? Wait June, a June of 2022, man, everybody had a job. Duncan cut all, his yeah, mic. seriously. Uh, you don't think so? You know, Simon, I've said this before. <laughs> Maybe because I'm an energy guy. No, Maybe no, 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 no. I'll tell it's you because what. I'm an energy there's guy. Nothing scarier, there's nothing scarier <laughs> than a pessimist with a British accent. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's very true. It's dastardly yeah. to say things like that. Don't assume I know anything. Wait, hold on. So, so obviously, listen, nobody knows what the future holds, but why do you say that we're going to look back on a year from now that this, these are the goals? You just talk about employment? Because of employment, yeah. yeah. Because if you got 5% unemployment, you know, the press and Krugman, oh, man, we screwed up. It was better when it was at 3.6 and everybody was employed. And now minority unemployment, 7 or 8. So 
This is not so bad. So help us square the circle because we, we 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 spent a lot of time. Saying these are going to be the good old oh days a year from now. Yeah, the the, the Nasdaq down the Nasdaq's down two and a half percent. Great. Uh, so help us square the circle. We've been talking for a few weeks about how it seems like so obvious that it, that a recession is coming. Clearly, the data says we're not in a recession today. Mm-hmm. H- help us understand like where we are and why it's what's going to happen between now and then. And give us the date yeah, that the recession will start. I mean. The Fed talks very hawkish, but they're fundamentally not. Okay, yeah. so if they if they walk the way they're talking, they will take rates up. You know, they think neutral is between two and three, right? When you hear when Powell's asked the question, they take rates up to four because they still believe they're going to do something. I think that's going to you know that's overnight gonna, rates at four. Yeah, I think that's going to have the most inverted yield curve yeah, of all I mean, time. Ten year yields won't be above four, but they'll probably be three and a half. That's the sort of thing that could cause a recession. So the question is, are they going to continue just to react to today's data, which is what they want to do, or are they going to be a little bit more forward-looking? And so it really turns on that. My feeling is that if you look at everything they say generally, if you look at their reinterpreted mandate, which favors employment, they will actually blink. They'll be very cautious. Yes, they'll put. They'll find. They'll be. There's what always will be a the thing that makes them blink? Mass layoffs, the, the stock market. They'll be in that two to three range. When they're at two, two and a half, unemployment goes up to four percent. They'll feel like you know. Let's just wait and see. Inflation is coming down. It is going. Everybody's. The Fed is forecasting inflation next year at like two and a half percent. Their PCE deflator, right, which yeah. is about half percent less than CPI. So every forecaster has falling inflation next year. So it won't be hard for them to say, you know, we're at sort of neutral. Inflation is coming down. We don't want to damage on it. And, and so just pause a little bit. Is it possible that the Fed will be less sensitive to stock market gyrations? Because this they will, are. The, hopefully this will be a rich man's recession where it's just asset prices and not Main Street that gets crushed. Yeah, I, I don't think they worry too much about stocks because the wealth effect translated into income is quite – it's a very low percentage. I mean, you know – 10% on the S&P is like, you know, half of 1% or something on personal consumption. So you'd need to see stocks down a third or 40% or something for them to really run. And fast, if it just went down gradually, like this bear market, you know, we're down 12% for the year. The market peaked in November. I mean, it sucks if you're like trading and any long every day, but we haven't had like a big crash or anything so, like that. So Josh and I were just talking earlier that this must be frustrating for the bears that are like so, so, so pessimistic. Why yeah. Because we, we, we had this nice bounce. And I was saying to Josh four hours ago, you know, you got to, I mean, the market's pretty resilient. You got to give it to the, to the bulls and they must be feeling pretty good here. And here we are. <laughs> the market's no, I was hard. saying who's more frustrated right now. It's got to be, be the bears because there's be. not one, there's not one fundamental reason why we're not in a 20% bear market right now. Well, and you know, the market always looks vulnerable at a macro level, right? What takes, what gets you invested is looking at individual companies and saying this company's prospects. Yeah, earnings estimates, this is cheap, estimates right? are not coming down. No, they're we're going still to, looking at eight, nine percent earnings growth next year. That's the last time I saw from facts there, right? So we're still looking at earnings growth. So, you know, I mean, if interest rates go up, of course, that makes stocks look less attractive, right? So they could be vulnerable for that. Oh, that's but. interesting. Looking at the macro is easier to get bearish. Looking at, but then listening to a conference call, a CEO of a big American company. Wow. That, yeah. Probably doesn't drive you to as much bearishness. No, the conference calls are the worst because every CEO is a marketer, right? They're yeah. always just telling. But but if you actually look at the go through the financials, right? You know, read what they've actually put out there yeah. and everything. Individual companies, you know, the ones that we follow in our sector, for example, then you can get really constructive. 
But at a high level, there's always stuff to worry about. I mean, we all know the list today, right, in terms of inflation and the Fed with interest rates. There'll always be a food list. Food prices. There will always be a list, too. Yeah, right? There's always going to be a list of stuff but to But sometimes, sometimes the list is longer than other times. And yes. It's particularly long right now. Right. But it's rare to be sitting there. I mean, David Tepper will do it, right, because he's a top-down guy. And he'll, and you know, you see him sometimes on TV and I say, it's, it's going up. It's going up. Everything's going up. Well, I remember him making a call like that years ago on CNBC, right? But put him aside, generally people worry because they're looking at all these, you know, headlines and high and high level stuff. So I want to talk about energy and and uh I think we just saw today, somebody gave me this information. We just saw the energy sector within the S P cross back above five percent weighting. Um, it was 1.9% at its oh, low. Bespoke, yes. bespoke did that. That was bespoke? Okay. Yeah. By the way, speak, speak, we spoke about Exxon for a second earlier. Uh, our friend Rank Capital tweeted, Exxon Mobil went from a 20-year low to an all-time high in over two years. Look at this chart. Have you ever seen anything like that? Unbelievable. Yeah, look at 20 that. 20-year low to an all-time high in less. Wow. <laughs> I mean, oh my yeah. I mean that, is the oil, that is the oil percentage of the S&P personified. Yeah. No doubt. So it's so it's more than doubled in terms of its weighting versus the overall market. And probably by the time this year is over, it's going to be much bigger than 5%. I mean, 18 months ago, they were borrowing to pay their dividend, right? Yeah. So there was real worry about that. And now it's and, – and this is years in the making, right? This isn't just a rebound from COVID. This is years of energy transition. For, I mean, imagine if we all sat on the board of an energy company – should we invest in new oil production? I mean, it's 10 years or more to get your money back. We yeah. don't know what oil demand is going to be, right? So these companies for years have been investing less money. And when you make a decision to invest in new production, you know, you make the decision, you, you put the money out there. You say, it takes you three, four, five years to start to get it, right? So 2027 oil production is being decided today. And for years, companies have been really hot, really since the Shell Revolution in the U.S., and we had low prices. We had That's a shell, when, and then we had a shale bust. And then we had a shale bust. Right. And then you had COVID. So capex on new output is down a lot. Same with pipeline companies as well. So there's very little excess supply. I mean, there's maybe one and a half percent excess supply out there. So as long as demand remains strong, it's going to drive prices. I remember up. hearing an energy bear prior prior to this year say something to the effect of, "Yes, it's true that drilling is down." And investment is down, but the new ways of drilling are quicker to bring online than the old ways. So they'll never let the price appreciably rise before they rush back to – in other words, like to assemble rigs and really start to drill maybe used to take like eight years and now it's four years or something. Oh, but, even four years, that's a long time, right? right so and, it doesn't, doesn't help us in the short term, but – And you've got to – it's not just finding the place to make a decision. You've got to hire the people. You've, you've got to get all of the equipment. I mean, you know, everybody's got a job that wants a job. And then climate protesters have been hugely positive for this industry. And people don't really think about this. Oh, those guys are trying to put you out of business. Every climate protester makes it more likely these companies are not going to invest money. So their capex is down, mm. right? So prices go up. There's more money for them to pay dividends. So, you know, I always feel if I meet a climate protester, I always, if you meet a climate there, protester- There might be one in this room. Who's the, so you know what? I'm going to give you a hug and I'm going to drive you to your next protest. Because and he's going to spit in your pollen spring. You, you're doing a great job. <laughs> well, uh, you ever run into Jeremy Grantham? I mean, I read his stuff. I yeah, yeah. It, yeah. So there's a climate protester. I yeah. think he's gotten arrested for it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, here's the thing, right? I sympathize you with visit that. visit him in jail. I have grandchildren. 
I want them to grow up and live in a secure planet. Right? But their views are so extreme. We're not running the world on solar panels and windmills, right? The biggest thing we can do is phase out coal and use natural gas. That's why I'm invested in natural gas, right? That's the big win. You get half the emissions. It's the transmission. With natural it's the, gas. It's, right. It's the uh, it's the, the transition fuel. The purists will say, no, no, because we don't want to use that. It's better than what we're doing now. We should use more nuclear. That's the safest form of electricity generation per gigawatt hour that's produced, right? But the Sierra Club and all the extremists, no, no, it's all got to be solar panels and windmills. It's never going to happen. They, they, right. You know, anybody that uses – look at Germany. The most expensive electricity in the world is in Germany, 20% wind. Within the United States, other than Hawaii, California, the most expensive and the least reliable. Mm. So they're two for that, right? So you can have renewables a little bit, but you get 20 to 25% efficiency. I mean, obviously, solar panels only work during the day when it's sunny. Wind, you never know. Offshore wind, you get 30 35%. And the more you have intermittent power, the less stable the grid is, the more you've got to have other things to back it up. We, so do, have a, we do have commercial-scale renewable energy projects being carried out by some of the biggest utilities, like – uh, Berkshire Hathaway has spent Berkshire Hathaway does. huge money on solar and wind. And we're going to use more of it. Okay. So I'm not telling you it's not going to happen. The world, so it's a global energy market, right? And what you have is two conflicting forces. The rich world wants lower emissions. America's emissions are down over the last decade. And you know why? Because we've been switching from coal to natural gas. Right. Natural gas is the biggest source of emission reductions in America by far, even though renewables get all the headlines. Rich world countries want lower CO2 emissions. What do emerging economies want? They want higher living standards, yeah. right? And so those two objectives are fundamentally in conflict. You know, China is 28% of emissions, 50% of global coal consumption. They want to raise living standards. But well, are living standards raised when you can't see five feet in front of you because you live down the street from from coal-fueled power? No, and actually the, the biggest uh, – uh, initiative for China to reduce coal consumption is local pollution. Yeah. Not the CO2, it's the local pollution. Okay. And so China's doing a lot in solar as well. But you know what? China's using more of everything yeah. because it's as fundamental as this. I looked at this uh, some while ago. Take Indonesia. In the 1960s, average life expectancy was 55 years old. Now it's 70 years old, right? Mm. And they're using a lot more energy. So they go hand in hand. You know, it, it takes energy to get clean water to get, you know, better uh, agricultural output, to have hospitals that are reliable, right? So it's, you know, there's nothing more- To have a middle class that has automobiles. Right. So there's nothing more fundamental than getting people to live longer in your country. I'm reading- Sorry, go No, you finish your thought. I'm reading a great book by Vaclav Smil. I just started reading about how the world really works. He's a fantastic writer. You have to sort of sit there with a calculator when you're reading, right? So here's a great stat. 200 years ago in America- we had 98% of the working age population in farming, okay, because mm. that's what it took it's to amazing. feed everybody, yeah. right? With horses and everything. Something like a third of the agricultural land was used to grow uh, food for horses because mm. we need So today, that's down by 99%. We got 1% of the American workforce is in agriculture feeding 330 million people instead of 105. And a lot of that's possible because of energy, because, of course, we have, you know, big combine harvesters and all the equipment and because of fertilizer, ammonia, right? I mean, nitrogen-based fertilizers have have dramatically increased output. And that's how we feed 8 billion people on the planet. So now commodity prices are increasing all over the place, especially agricultural commodities. Aggravated by Russia. So where do you think 
crude would be absent Russia's invasion and what would that be doing to inflation? Like, would we be at $100 a barrel and, and 6%? Th- and throw wheat prices in there too. Like, th- that seemed to be like the, that it's was like probably, fuel on the fire. Yeah. We didn't need that. Yeah. We didn't need that. Right? But it would be great. above 100 bucks. You know, if you take Brent as 120, it would be 100 to 105 in my opinion. And so, infl- I mean, core inflation is under six, right? So, the headline inflation that's eight, you know, you'd probably be running at six or six and a half, be my guess. It'd still be high. But you can draw a direct line between the end of February when Russia invaded and the real spikes that got the stock market's attention in inflation. Yeah, yeah. So it sped up something that was already in progress, you're saying? Yes, okay. absolutely. The trend was there, but we, like I said, we didn't need that. That's exacerbated. And I'm sure, you know, Putin thought through that. Yeah. This is not a good time for the world to stop. So as somebody who invests in pipelines and really understands transmission, um, what's the real situation on the ground in terms of like, will will Europe be able to get through the summer with the supplies that are coming or not coming via pipeline? Well, the real issue for for Europe will be the winter, right? Because, you know, Europe doesn't – air conditioning is a much bigger thing here. I mean, southern European maybe, but but it's the winter. So – Part of that depends on the weather, right, and how cold it gets. Part of it is how quickly can they reroute. Obviously, they're working really hard. I mean, Germany has leased three of these uh, floating regasification of storage units for, for liquefied natural gas, right, for LNG. And there's probably a dozen in the world because people don't just build these things and leave them laying around, right? So they've got those three. Um, but it's weather dependent. And I think the uh, a likely outcome there is that Germany has made very clear that Russia, when we can, we're, we're not using your natural gas anymore. And pretty obviously, the timing of that will be decided by Russia, not Germany, right? I mean, it's not really plausible that Russia will say, oh, okay, you want the last one? You're okay, fine, that's good for us. No, they'll they'll cut off, you know, at some time that's less convenient for Germany. So, yeah, Europe's in a tough spot. I mean, they've had if – you, if you look at their energy mix and their reliance on imports – They've had a, a absolutely dysfunctional. I mean, they didn't even think about energy security. It was all about climate change and transitioning to renewables, right? Which is why they were so willing Nuclear to- is not big there either. No, I France. I think they have the same hesitance France, to it that, that we France do. is big. Oh, France right? is big. Germany has, uh, is phasing it all out. Okay. And, you know, once you decide you're going to shut down a nuclear reactor, you know, you get to a certain stage and it may still run for another five years, but it's hard to sort of reel that back. So right. these are these are poor decisions. If we really care about climate, we have to use a lot more nuclear. We have to stop using coal and use natural gas. We've got to invest in carbon capture to take, you know, you can take CO2 out from a power plant and bury it. And, and most of these issues are money. If we want to see, you know how you know people don't really care about the climate a lot. Everybody cares about the climate. But gas prices have gone up. We're all worried about that. What should be happening is, is we should be saying, boy, you know, gas prices up. We should all buy electric vehicles, you know. that. But no, everybody just wants lower gas prices. So the fear or the worry about climate is broad but shallow. People right. won't spend money. That's why there's no carbon tax. There should be a carbon tax to send signals so companies can make investments knowing what they'll get Is it realistic it. for Europe ever to uh, run itself with LNG coming from elsewhere or not really? Well, they can replace what they get, right? I mean, Germany was Where getting, is it coming from then? Well, it'll come from us. It'll from Qatar. It'll come from Qatar. How, how much LNG can we ship off the coast of Louisiana? Like, is that- Well, we do 12 billion cubic feet a day. We produce 95. Okay. And it's going to be slow to grow because it takes a long time to build new capacity to export, right? Because these, these- Is that a home run investment? 
I think so. So, okay. So the transmission I mean, companies that have the ability to – or own the LNG terminals, is that Schneer? Schneer is the, the biggest. Yeah, okay. Schneer is the biggest. Energy transfers building one as well. There's okay. one or two small companies. You know, we own a little company called Next Decade, which isn't even producing it yet. Right. But they're signing up contracts with people. But okay. Shania's the leader. Okay, so these are these are the types of investments based on that outlook that you just say to yourself, I feel pretty good that for the next decade the demand is going to be there. Yeah, because natural gas always has the chance to displace coal. So if the world gets serious on climate change, you've got that. But in addition, no matter what happens in Russia now, if Putin was to drop dead tomorrow and Russia pulled out of Ukraine, Germany's still not going back to Russia because you don't know who'll be there in the future. So Germany, you know, a pipeline means you care about where it's coming from, right? So Germany for its natural gas is going to be buying LNG. That is done. There's no possible scenario where that changes. Wasn't there a bunch of consolidation in the uh, in the MLP space a couple of years ago? There was some, not as much as some people expected. You know, there were, there were some combinations, you know, with Anadarko, for example, and, and Western Gas and so on. But no, that you know, the biggest company is actually Enbridge, who are Canadian, but the three big Canadians all have extensive U.S. assets. So that broader is You'd buy not, this chart. not too uh, mean Yeah, what is that? LNG, yeah. one-year chart. Yeah, it looks good. It looks yeah. like it's going to break out again. It looks like it's about to break out again. Um, and they right. only just started paying a dividend. Because the great thing about Chenier, so every company's got to spend money maintaining its assets. Chenier, as a percentage of EBITDA, is spending less than any other company in infrastructure because- They've spent, you know, $25 billion building these plants. And, and now they have it. And it's done. So they're coming down their side. And they've got 20-year <laughs> contracts, you know, with Tokyo Electric and, and Seoul, South Korea, you know, with really investment grade, good credit rating. I forget who did this chart by showing the spread between – the 12-month rolling spread between the best and worst performing sectors. And I think – I don't know if we're at an all-time high, but we're right about there. And I think, I think it might be between – I know it's energy on the top side. It might be tech on the downside, which is kind of hilarious. Yeah. Well, we were the other side of that two For years ago. For a long ago. time. Yeah. Believe let's, me, I've yeah. sat on the other side yeah. of that too. Hey, yeah. John, let's go into uh, Simon's charts. So the first one is rescuing the world's, uh, the old world's energy security, which we were talking about. What What is this showing us? Well, this shows you, so this is our ability to export liquefied natural gas, right? So you can see we're at 12 now. We're good at this now. And you can see what the capacity will be because it's three, four, five years to build. And there's another chart that, that, that I didn't give you guys that goes that further. So we're not suddenly solving Europe's problem this year. We can't just go from 12 to 18 BCF a day. The natural gas has to be condensed to one six hundredth of its normal volume. In order to ship and, it. Yeah, so that's a very special. What do they do? They, it's condensation? They get the gas to They turn it into a liquid, liquid form yeah. under extremely high pressure, specialized tanker with big spherical tanks, and it actually lets a little bit of it leak Holy out as shit. it's moving. What's up? Crash? Not a good close. Uh, Josh, we're talking about, like, so the, so the market broke a little bit today. Uh-oh. Oh, <laughs> man. I actually bought a stock. You know, like you know the scene in Alien Resurrection where he where he lasers the little piece of cube and it turns into the scotch? No. It's like that in reverse. <laughs> okay. Yeah, not a nice ending. Okay. So that's what that tells you. So we're going to grow LNG export capacity. It's going to take time. You know, by 2030, we could be from 12. We could be at 20 BCF a day. Depending on some projects, we may be at 40, but 2030, this is not necessary. Why do you favor the pipelines over like the EMP names? The pipelines are much more stable. The pipeline business model is I charge you a fee. It's like owning a bridge, right? You go over the bridge, you pay me a fee. 
So it doesn't matter. I always say, you know, if you own a bridge, you don't care if it's German cars or American cars. You just don't care how many cars, right? But would you agree the stocks are not more stable? Like the stocks are stocks. You know, they these, do treat the, them like oil stocks when this, oil crashes. This crashes. sector, because of, you know, Shell Revolution, the past energy, this sector was too volatile. Closed end MLP funds were a disaster two years ago. With They're leverage, done. Yeah, 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 they've all blown up. They don't exist in any, in any meaningful way. The cash flows are more stable for these stocks. They used to be much more stable than upstream than EMP. I think we're going back to that, and that'll bring down the yields more. The yields are still 5%. The yields are still too high. I think, you know, well, they used to be much meaning the prices are too low. Yeah, the I prices of these see, stocks. I think the, the yields should drift down to 4.5 or 4%. You know, but were the yields unsustainably high? Like, I wonder if you said a lot of these are older, wealthier Americans that had been buying these in 12, 13, 14, 15, because yields on treasuries were effectively zero. Right. Well, the model used to be that they'd pay out 90% of their cash flow. So that 5% yield used to mean like a read. Of, right. Now they have 10% free cash flow yields. They've got tremendous coverage. They're paying out half of the cash flow they're generating. So they're doing buybacks. Pipeline companies didn't do buybacks. They're raising dividends. They could have a 25% free cash flow hit. They still have one and a half times coverage of their dividends. So they're much more conservative. Mm. You know, that was a traumatic experience for everybody involved, for the investors and for the management companies. And so they've they changed. They they've learned. It. They've learned. They, their capex is down two thirds from what it was at the peak. Let's go into the bull case for US LNG, John. So this is natural gas remains much cheaper in the U.S. compared to Europe. That is a huge it's, spread for a commodity. It's, it's enormous. Right? So in the and United States, what are these numbers for the people so listening? Th th so this is dollars per million BTUs. A million BTUs is about 1,000 cubic feet of natural gas, right? And the U.S. price is it's hard to tell on that chart. You know, it's currently around $8. It's been as low as 2 but it's single digits, right? And, the, you know, that's the Dutch TTF uh, benchmark. What is that, 30 yeah, I mean, it was over. It was at seventy. Wait, Simon, what is a U.S. Henry hub? I don't. I've never heard that term. So that's the benchmark for natural gas. Okay. So there's a futures contract, and it settles against natural gas delivered at the Henry hub. Can you think of another commodity that's got that disparate of a price from Europe to America, or is this? No, this is the biggest gap there is. It's right. It's really hard to move natural gas. You can't put it in a truck. Gold is identical. Yes. Somebody in in Amsterdam will buy gold at roughly the same price as somebody it's in New York. It's really hard to – so if you if you have a – you know, if you have a propane gas bottle with your barbecue, right, that has propane. If you put natural gas, which is methane, in there, it'll blow up, right? The steel has to so be – So you're not recommending thicker. that anyone do that? I wouldn't do that. Okay. Don't, don't buy 50 – don't put 50 on a truck and plan on driving somewhere to take that. Right? So right. it has to go through a pipeline or on a specialized tanker. And, you know, that infrastructure takes a long time to build. That's why they do long-term contracts. That's the beauty of natural gas infrastructure is you can't do anything else with an LNG export facility except export LNG. So you're going to do 20-year contracts before you build it. And that's what Chenier's done, and that's what other companies do in energy transfer, for example. They won't have trouble getting new 20-year contracts. The contracts no. will be signed as soon as you present, hey, we're, we're doing this. Okay, well, you great. know, we've, we're on about Europe. 75% of LNG trade is in Asia. Right. Mm. China's the biggest import of LNG, and then Japan. That's Does China where import the, American LNG, or are they getting from you Africa know, or something? You know, they were. It might be not now. I'm not yeah. sure, to be honest with you. I mean, there are, there are traders who will buy it, and then they can ship it to wherever the price is highest. Okay, let's go to giving investors what they want. Midstream sector forecast to increase I think this is, this investor is returns a, by a third over five we, years. What are we looking at here? So this is basically— Just what, sign the paperwork. What are, what, are these, what are these pipelines doing with their available capital, right? And the blue there, $32 billion, that's what that's CapEx. That's what they're spending on new stuff. That's going down over the next five that's years. That's incredible. They're buying back a little bit of their debt. 
they're raising their payouts, right? They're spending $39 billion. This is about a $500 billion sector. They're spending $39 billion in dividends. That's going to go up to 44. That's a 2.5% compound annual growth rate. But they're also doing buybacks. Buybacks are going to go up 4x over the next five years. They spent $3 billion on buybacks this year. We think they'll spend 12 in five years' time. So that's two ways of giving money back to investors. And this is well covered by free cash flow. So this is two, so the 2027 year 2027 estimate is that uh, midstream companies, pipeline companies, will spend 30 billion on capex, will pay down seven and a half billion in debt, will do 44 and change billion in dividends, and then buy back 12 billion and change in their stocks. So that right. that almost sounds like a a, a guaranteed return. If you're a shareholder, unless you pay too high a price today. Yeah, I mean, obviously, life's uncertain. Five years is a long time, but sixty-six billion dollars in capital return to investors in I guess, five years. I guess what I'm asking is, what could upend that higher than expected capex because new environmental regulations, or like, what's what's the risk to this yeah, five-year forecast? Yeah, the risk of that is a steep recession, a, a, a steep prolonged recession, which would do what? Hit demand, hit the price yes, of oil. If we drive less, so in a recession, if we drive less, if industries use less energy, if we're using so that's less the natural same risk gas. for every other type of stock. Yes. Yes. But so exactly. in theory, this should be in, uh, fairly insulated from the price of oil. But in real life, it's not. Oil drives sentiment, right? Right. I mean, it's a great example. You know, Williams Companies is in XLE. XLE moves with oil. Williams is a natural gas company. They do not sit there worrying about the price of oil, but the stock moves with oil because right. it moves with XLE. So, so that it drives sentiment. But it's really about volumes and demand that go through. And so, if it drives sentiment in the wrong direction, then if anything, it's an opportunity for an investor who knows the difference between Williams and Chevron. Yes, I think that's right. And I can tell you, a lot of investors look at energy today and the pipeline sector, they say, boy, yeah, it looks great. But man, look at two years ago. Have I missed it? What if it happens again? Yeah, they're looking at, and I get right. that. So you don't have money like rushing in. I mean, we're raising money every day, but it's not like it's gushing in. This is early days, in my opinion. You know, these are long cycles. Yeah. You know, the last one was from 20, 2008, 2014, right? Six years. Do you draw a distinction between the K-1 uh, pass-through entities versus the corporations? You know, it's mostly corporations now, Josh, because okay. the K-1s have such a narrow investor base. And these companies said, look, we need to appeal to everybody. So let's convert to be regular corporations. So that's We're what Enterprise Products did. That's well, what EPD, Kinder- Enterprise Products, is the biggest MLP. So some kept the structure. They, some kept the structure. They okay. have a 6.6% yield. So they're higher than the sector. There's a price discount. To be an MLP, you trade at a lower price, but there's tax efficiencies. Higher too, so. yield, bigger pain in the ass to file the taxes. Yes. Got yes. it. But we own them too. They're a good company, very well run. Okay. But Kinder Kinder, Kinder Morgan, 1099. the biggest. Kinder Morgan, Williams. You know, Enbridge, uh, TC Energy, One Oak, Target, um, Target Resources. These are all C-Corps. Did Enron give these companies a bad name uh, 20 years ago that, like, I'm, I'm, it's too long ago now for people to really care. Yeah, I but think. It, but well, is that part of why this, this part of the market isn't more well-known? It may be. You know, Rich Kinder was from Enron yeah. originally. Part of Kinder's uh, network was something that Enron had. So, yeah, maybe. I mean, okay. nobody talks about it now, but maybe uh, some years okay, ago. Okay, let's go to Europe's energy catastrophe. Yeah, so look at this. This is from J.P. Morgan. This is a, this is a great, great chart. So look at their uh, production, right, which basically peaked 20 years ago. That's the brown line, right? So they went – That's basically, European oil and gas production. Oil and gas, it fell by half over two decades, right? Yeah. And then you can see their oil and gas imports from Russia uh, exploded not, higher. This, this is trouble. Just trending this higher. This is right? trouble. And so 
There's no energy security in this. They're not thinking energy security. So isn't this a wake-up call? Is this is this a watershed yeah. moment for them, for Europe? Big time. I mean, think how quickly Germany decided to rearm and pivot on energy imports. So funny. I said I the mean, same thing about Decades of strategy, just like that. Defense spending and energy spending are two things that are guaranteed to go up in Europe. Yeah. And maybe worldwide for the next 10 years. Could be, right? Yeah. Look Certainly at, look for at how, Europe. Look at how belligerent their neighbor is. Yeah, exactly, right? Yeah. It would be and the, the most irresponsible to Europe, thing. To, the, to Russia, look at the polls. They're, they're, they're even more worried, right? So, so this was a disaster. This is a strategic disaster. Merkel is certainly one of the people to blame for that because she was there so long. And she's very defensive on that whole issue. But she, you know, she, she made her choices. She drove policy in the wrong direction. I think the Europeans really bought into their own bullshit with the, the single currency, but let's not unite the banking system. Like everybody will just play nicely together. Yes, yes. And, and then this fo- kind of falls into that same category of yeah. like, did you really expect that human nature would mean would would revert to some? You know what I like to do. You know Maslow's pyramid, right? This hierarchy of needs, right? Yeah. I don't know if you've ever seen that. I put this on my blog. The most basic thing is you need shelter, security, and then food, and then at the very top is self awareness. Netflix. Right? Netflix, right? Right. So the people who care most about climate change are the ones at the top. They've achieved everything. They John, have everything John Kerry. Yeah, yeah. What does John Kerry have to worry about? He's got nothing to worry about, right? He married if, the ketchup queen. Yeah. If He's good forever. Right. If you're in India, you're worrying about actually do you have enough propane to cook tonight, right, and stuff yeah. like that, right? So this is it. This is it, right? So ESG let me, is – let me, let me ask you politically – let me ask you. That's that's the hierarchy of needs. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Self actualization is not high on the list for like ninety five percent of the people on earth. Right. And the ESG people are sitting up there, right? D- John, can you throw up this ESG chart from uh, from Financial Times? ESG has been a rapidly increasing topic in earnings calls. Basically, it was at zero percent for like twenty years, and now it's at twenty percent. It's Oswald Demotoran did a went on an epic rant on Patrick O'Shaughnessy's podcast a couple of weeks back, just basically like. There's no there there, and it's all a profit grab from black. So how about this? And- how about this? Right, the Dow Jones Sustainability Index has Lockheed Martin and Northrop Grumman. Sustainable I you missiles. Not. The sustain. What? Hear me green? Out. They're green missiles, right? Yes. I mean, give me an F. Well, that's break. what people want to be hit by. They want to be right. hit by sustainably right. farmed. I mean, they're really just having us on, aren't they? Year after year, Lockheed Martin's in there. Put up the global rise of ESG funds. It's not even ESG because they could say, well, on the governance side, they could no sustainability. <laughs> what does a sustainable bomb look like? Lockheed can bomb you into the Stone Age, but there are a lot of women on the board. <laughs> so, all right. Uh, the global rise of ESG funds. This is looks like 2.7 trillion yeah. globally, most of which is Europe. I think a lot of this was investor demand, and then Wall Street. It Wall is. Street said, sure. right? So the most important thing supply. about what you care about with ESG, the only thing you care about is fund flows. That's why it's important. If a lot of people care about ESG, that's why every company in the S and P has a set of ESG slides. You said. We just posted a video on ESG today. ESG is a scam. We've already had some great feedback. So what's the feedback that you get? People that secretly know it's bullshit but have to pretend that they care because they sit with institutions. Well, I had one – actually, one uh, person who's not invested with us yet who called up and said, I've been looking for an anti-ESG manager and you're the first one I've found. So I'm in. So that was that was terrific. But right? you're not, you're not, but you're not, not anti-like you think, you think all these ideas have no merit. No, I'm not anti – there are components of ESG. I care about the climate, right? 
So it's a little bit more subtle. I think ESG, I would, we do not invest on ESG. It's irrelevant, even though pipeline stocks are in BlackRock's ESGU ETF because natural gas is a great uh, substitute for coal. So the scam part is not, not the it's idea. The marketing. It's, it's, the marketing. it's the products. The scam part the is product. that ESG companies don't perform any better than non-ESG companies. There's no, there's no reason to expect better metrics, return on invested capital or profit margins or anything else like that. The stocks did well for a long time while capital is going in. Now ESG stock, ESGU is actually lagging the S&P. The biggest ESG fund is lagging. But if every because company in the S&P says that they're ESG, then nobody is. Well, but there's nothing, right, then there's nothing right? there. Of course. Let's put this doing good isn't doing better. Well, I guess ESG is not a universal, nobody agrees, not everybody right. will agree. So of if course. you can personalize it, like, right. like we're able to with, with some of the direct indexing that we do, where somebody can say, hey, you know what? I've had enough of Wells Fargo. Hey, you know what? I don't want to invest in Facebook. That's very different than buying an index fund that looks exactly the same as the S&P and charging another So this looks, exactly. this looks look identical that. to right. me. Now there's a lag because there's, there's not enough energy. They have ESG. some energy, but they don't have Exxon. And so- BlackRock is obviously run by very smart people. They don't want to lag the S&P by too much, right? They, they want to convince people they've got some special source the in there, but thing. be close. Right? The same thing. Yeah, so they're lagging now, right? So, so buy an S&P fund. Right. What's so, the point? In so well, I guess Bloomberg did a big piece on them last year that, that if I'm, I think it was Bloomberg, that a lot of the rise of the ESG funds was BlackRock putting the ESG products in their model portfolios. Yes, yes. That'll do it. That's right. so, I bet that's right. Uh, the Financial yeah. Planning Association's 2022 Trends in Investing Survey was released last week, and it showed that 15% of advisors are looking to diminish their use or recommendations of client ESG investments over the next 12 months. That doesn't sound like what the media is saying. That's not a lot, is it? I'm surprised it's not more than that. So that's more than three times as many who said the same thing last year. As recent events, I wonder what those could be, led some investors and their advisors to pull back. A bull market in fossil fuels may have contributed to cooling demand for ESG. Yeah, right. ETF flows came in at less than half of those seen at the beginning of 2021. Um, net inflow, blah, 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 blah. So in other words, like oil, what, what are oil stocks up this year? 45% or something? Oil probably. Uh, we're, can I, can, we're set to 60. 30 to 35. 60 with uh, the S&P down 15. That's a that'll massive. Do, that'll put the, the, and the you know stake right in ESG's share. Heart. Yeah. You know, Wells Fargo has said this. Now investors just can't afford to be underweight energy. So they, you know, when it was 2%, they said, oh, I'm not going to bother. When it's 5%, you kind of have to have a point of view, right? I'll just say one thing. On the, I'm on ESG the, curious. On the level of, on the pyramid of scams, I think people might get uh, frustrated because it's like a moral, you know, superiority type thing. We're going to be, right. you know, I understand the pushback. But in terms of like Wall Street scams, to me, this is like way down the bottom of the list. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Way down, but in terms of being offensive, because listen- you're getting an index fund, right? You're right. not getting killed. Okay, it, there's so, a lot worse. Non-traded right. reads. Yeah, the a SEC lot worse. is bringing suits yeah. now, though. They're going yeah. to asset managers and they're saying, we saw your marketing. Oh, absolutely. Show us what you're actually doing and Look how at the, it um, lines the up. The whistleblower. D- DWS, yeah, the, so here's the big a quote, German asset here, here, manager. He, was, he had to quit, the CEO. So here's a quote from, somebody, from the person that blew the whistle on them. Uh she said, I still believe in sustainable investing, but the bureaucrats and marketers took over ESG and now it's been diluted to a state of meaningless. Yeah. And I think most I, people I sympathize with that, with that yeah. because the thing is, the objectives of the investors are, are good, good objectives, right? No, I understand right. why yeah. you'd want to invest. Yeah, I always totally. think the best thing is just invest to make the most money, take some of your profits and put it into some cause that you believe in. 
And don't be, don't confuse so, making a profit with doing good. So I know people who that that line of reasoning, and I've I've said things to that effect. And I, I don't, by the way, I don't have a strong opinion whether or not people should try to do ESG things with their portfolio. But when you say that to somebody who's not only an ESG investor but an impact investor, and they very much feel passionately and strongly that if we don't all collectively use our dollars and direct them toward the things that we think matter. Nothing will ever change because only money talks. And normally they're not talking just about climate. They're talking about the hiring practices of companies, the social aspect of this. Um, but wait, but impact investing is very different than ESG Understood, funds. but it's, right. a, spe- it's yeah. a spectrum. Yeah. That's the furthest end of the spectrum. No, but, but impact investing is actually I mean, hiring practices, of I'm yeah. no, I'm agreeing with you. that. So, so there are people that just say, until we collectively just say this is unacceptable for society – we will starve these people of dollars until they go out of business or change their ways. I'm sympathetic to that, and I've used this example before. I think that that kind of attitude was instrumental in putting an end to apartheid in South Africa. I think we starved them globally. We said people are not playing Sun City anymore. Um, we are not going to have uh, advertisements running there. We're not going to serve th- those cities, Johannesburg, etc. I mean, et it could be. I would nice to think that. It's, of course, it's, you can never prove it either way, right? I mean, it sure. is a black country, right? So eventually that was probably going to have to change, right? But anyway, but ESG index funds ain't it. That's not where change is coming from. Fine. I, I stipulated, yeah. but I'm just saying the idea behind it does come from something legitimate, which is that Really, in the end, well, money, because money the talks. goals are good goals, yeah. right? It's hard to criticize what they're trying and to achieve. And then Wall Street met demand right. with supply, right? And the supply was, uh, but I agree with you. It's sort of a low order right. sin. Right. It's like okay, they're a bit naive, thinking that that's what they're getting, but whatever. You it's know. right. It's low I mean, on the list of. They scams. haven't done that. ESGU hasn't been a disaster. No, right? not at all. It's kind of not done at all. a little bit yet. worse in the market. Yet, right? <laughs> right. Uh, I want I want to talk about gold and just get your take on this. We learned this year it's not really a great inflation hedge after all. Oil is better. Uh, gold. This is my friend J.C. Peretz, uh, All Star Charts. Gold is at the same price it was two years ago. Gold is still at the same price it was 11 years ago. Silver is down 40% from that same point. Inflation hedge? Nothing could be further well, from the can truth. Can I just say one thing? Not, I'm not usually a gold defender, but I would just say that the U.S. dollar, the strength of the U.S. dollar yeah. during this inflationary period is kind of – uh, odd. Dollars it's, at a, tw- a I mean, 20 you, you could put any currency up there. And so you can't, look, so, put, so yeah. gold can't possibly do well when it's priced in dollars. But can right. you, with a straight face, say that in the year with the worst inflation of most of our lifetimes uh, or adult lifetimes, gold acting the way it is completely invalidates its actual practical use as something that well, can, what, a, a well, yeah. what can you inflation. say is always an is always an forever an inflation hedge there are different types of inflation you have to own companies that have price impact coca-cola yeah. mcdonald's right yeah they're, because disney right because if their costs go up five percent they'll raise price five percent and they have a strong brand put and that, people put will that pay chart that. back up it John, is a remarkable chart because gold and silver have gotten destroyed so throw, relative to other commodities throw silver throw silver out just just the the concept this is it's not gold versus the stock market. It's gold versus commodities. Gold versus every other commodity, which all contend with a high dollar. That's why this is so compelling. Yeah, that's you that can't is just, really yeah. – Right. So you can't just say, oh, it's the dollar because look look what it's – it's up against the basket of every other yeah, commodity. Okay. Yeah. It's terrible. It's, it's, real, it's truly yeah, terrible. It's terrible. Yeah. Waste of time. I've never owned gold. Right. I've, ne- I've never been a, a gold person. I've been sympathetic to the idea – 
that an ounce of gold will always buy a fine gentleman's suit or whatever. Right, right. That actually turns out to be true from, from what I've seen. I mean, what about but Bitcoin? Bitcoin should be an inflation hedge, right? That hasn't not, worked either. And right? it's also not. I don't right. think anything is an inflation hedge. Like, uh, I mean, if you think about it, the point of investing in stocks is a, to protect against inflation, right. right? That is why you own stocks. Yeah. So when inflation's going up, people are sort of forget that. Isn't that why you have 60, 40 portfolio? The bonds are not the inflation hedge, right? That's every saver's biggest risk is inflation. So stocks that can raise prices. Yeah, I mean, energy's been great because oil prices are up, right? But big companies with a brand where they can raise prices, pricing power, has to be. P&G, companies like that, right? Uh, stock splits. Uh, we got a 20 for one this week for Amazon. Right. Took effect on Monday. The stock proceeded to then sell off immediately, <laughs> yeah. immediately right. afterward. Uh, Alphabet is the next one. Uh, this was the first Am- this was the first split for Amazon in 23 years. It's hard to believe uh, it's wow. been that long. Since- years. Did that Google long. announce they're doing one too? Uh, Alphabet, yeah, yeah. So, so I guess it seems like either one of these companies post split could end up in the Dow. I bet you they both go in at the same time. Which it's happened. Intel yeah. and Microsoft both got in the same year. Which of these two do you think has is more deserving? Meaning, like representative of the economy, Amazon. Amazon. So Google's, ad- Google's advertising. Amazon is America. Uh, you know, the, the cool thing about Google, I mean, I know one or two people who work there, they have the smartest people at yeah. Google. I mean, just think of Google Maps, how they make money out of that, right? Couldn't you say if you were making the case for Google belonging in the Dow that, yeah, it's advertising, but it's advertising for every single yes. segment of the economy, yeah. services included? I mean, yeah, they, they're covering everything, right? All right, yeah. so uh, stipulating that Google and Amazon what do you come co- What do you kick out? Yeah, I'm looking right now. What comes kick out? Kick out of the oil companies. <laughs> ESG Dow. No, you know what? You know what? IBM. IBM is over. Oh yeah, they're history. That should have happened. That should have happened a long time ago. How are they still? That's how way over. Okay, so Google for IBM. And what is what? Amazon going for? Is Sears still? Why in there? is Amgen in the Dow? You need a biotech. It's the biggest one. You, um, need, you need one. I don't know. We got Johnson and Johnson. No, no, they no, got no, Merck. No. Are there any media, media companies that look susceptible? You, you got uh, not media uh, retail. You got to leave Verizon in there. Uh, maybe Dow. I don't know. Dow Chemical. Dow Chemical. Because yeah. you're not. I mean, you're not taking out JP Morgan. No, McDonald's you need. To, Coke. You have to kick out a retailer, but is it only Walmart? No, you know what? Intel and IBM. Final answer. Oh, Intel still, still in there. Still Intel in and that. IBM. Right. Good night. Right. Yeah. Good night. Uh, okay. I think. I think we all agree on those. I just want to show up this chart real quick. This. This. This blew my face. Market share of select package carriers by volume. We've got the USPS. We've got UPS and FedEx. Amazon Logistics. Wow. Oh, shit. <laughs> wow. Look past at that. FedEx. That's Amazon amazing. Logistics is 22% market it's share. FedEx is 19%. Hey, I was at my kid's uh, uh, preschool graduation the other day, and they all wore like a sign, like, I had a dream that I'm going to become uh, whatever when I grow up. Oh, Somebody cool. wrote Amazon Man. And I asked the mother, I was like, what is, like, like a- Jeff Bezos? Like the, like the delivery, Jeff? and they said, yeah, like the delivery guy. Oh my God. Who doesn't love to get an Amazon package? Every day? All the time. And I forget what I've ordered. So yeah. it's like a surprise. It's a present. Oh yeah, that's what, yeah. you know what, it's a present and it's what Santa I wanted. Claus. How cool is that, right? <laughs> it's, Santa Claus rings the doorbell every day. And you're yeah. your own Santa Claus. It's fantastic. Yeah. The kid must be really excited when the Amazon man shows up. Oh, and he's that's got a, cute. And he's that's got, so sweet. Uh, the IPO market pretty much disappeared this year, Simon. Yes. Um, obviously the levels of IPO volume were probably unhealthy, meaning way too much supply, new companies, new stocks. 
what's your what's your take on that was offensive? Wall Street offensiveness. The SPAC boom was offensive. Yes, oh. yes. Really, thank God. Yeah, yeah. Thank God that's gone. Yeah. All right, listen to this. 157 companies raised 18 billion in the first five months of 2022. That's compared to 628 that raised 192 billion in the first five months of 2021. Yeah, I mean, the SPACs were the sort of the evidence of the froth, right? Yeah. I mean, you've always- Those were all like, IPOs that I just yeah. gave you. No, you always need that optimism out. and excitement we're and everything. Out. Yeah, yeah, we are, There's right? no more money at the pump. The, right. Globally- right. People va- are filling up their cars. Yeah. Globally, the value of IPOs dropped 71% in the first five months of this year from 283 billion to 81 billion. And the number of listings fell from 1,237 to 596. Uh, in, fir- in line with ARC. The first three quarters of 2021 were the busiest period ever for listings. So speaking yeah, of mean so reversion, of comparison. course. Right, right, tough comparison. Right, of right, course yeah. that was going to happen. Yeah. Right. Um, May IPOs, the ones that did come public last month, which not a great idea. Anything hyper- – I don't remember anything coming. Negative 28% <laughs> from the offer as opposed to – Positive 73% in May of uh, last year. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, just absolutely demolished. Let's see. There were – here, Bright Green came public. It's a U.S. cannabis producer. Bausch & Loam came public, the eye care company. So there weren't – there has not been a lot. Right. Um, when does this come back? Does this, does this need interest rates to stop going up before people even want to hear stocks, about this? Yeah, we're not there There's now. no risk appetite. Yeah. That's it. I, I, think, I think probably – we need to feel the Fed is at least on pause to have a chance. Yeah. As long as they're planning 50 basis points every time they meet and more, you know. So neutral rates, two and a half to three rates. They're pausing. Uh, there may be people. Let's bring some stuff back yeah. to market. Next at year. At much lower valuations, though, than they would have come this out. This is next year. I don't think you see anything this year. Okay. Well, they had a they had a bumper crop last year. Yeah. So they, they'll right. have to live off of that right. for a little while. That's it. Uh, this is the part of the show where we do favorites. And you already gave us a great book recommendation. What was it called again? Oh, uh, the Hedgefund Mirage. No, no, no. Of How course. the world really works. How the world really By works. By Vaclav Smil. Okay. Uh, what other what other books or or TV shows or movies like what are what are your favorite things right now? Well, I read Fossil Future by Alex Epstein okay. just before that. Okay. Uh, TV shows. We're watching Lincoln well, Lawyer. Oh, I'm watching Lincoln Lawyer. That's that's great. It's Love pretty that. good, right? Outlander. That's a great, you know, wives love that. Yeah. Right? That's the, that's the one where she wakes up 200 years ago? It's a very clever mm. story, yes. It's sort of a time traveler, which makes it sound sort of futuristic, but she travels backward. And it's a fantastically involved plot. She kills really, all the fossil fuels? Well, yeah, there's no fossil fuels when she goes back. They're dealing with, you know, which, which is the most pollution, right, when you burn wood. But that's great. We, you know, my wife and I really enjoyed that. Okay, and what's this uh, HSBC presentation? Tell us oh, about that. Oh, Stuart Kirk, that yeah. was so cool. So the FT had this sustainability conference. Stuart Kirk is HSBC's head of sustainability, and he gets up there and says, I'm just sick of it. I'm sick of one more nutcase telling me the world's going to end. You just heard somebody tell you, the last presenter, I didn't see all of you running out of the room. They're all going to die. You, In fact, you're all on your cell phones. And so he's been suspended. <laughs> I okay. fired. He's been suspended. Uh, and I have and I have a lot of respect for him. He's had enough. He's saying, look, we're we're threatened by cybercrime. Tell, tell us the story. Who is Stu- who is Stuart Kirk so, and why did he get fired? 
or suspended. suspended. HSBC. No, so he's HSBC's head of sustainability. So he's supposed to go out there and tell investors what HSBC is doing on climate change, on sustainability, on helping make the planet and he lost the shit in ESG. And he's basically had enough of it. He had a Jerry Maguire moment. Yeah. What did he right. say specifically? You know, these not, well, he said the not case the way the world's going to end. He pulls up charts. He didn't just get up there and prepared. He had the slides approved internally. They obviously didn't look at them, right? He has one slide where he says, you know, I've got, he's got one slide that compares climate catastrophe. How many times people use climate catastrophe and the level of the stock market? He says, you look at stocks. People are not worried that the world's going to end because of climate change, right? The market's not reacting to that. So, you know, I don't really see what the worry is. We're worried about cybercrime. We're worried about the housing market. Mm. And climate change is going to happen over decades. You know, it's so far off. Why are all these regulators asking me that stuff? So, yeah, he's so promptly suspended. They, this was about two weeks ago. I still haven't seen whether they've reinstated him or fired him. But, but I'm guessing he's not going back to the same job. But it's funny that that's his job to begin with, is sustainability. I know, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. It's he's th- great. You should watch it. It's, it. I put a link onto it on my video. It's like a five-minute uh, uh, piece. But he's just saying it like it is. Did they carry him off the stage or they let him finish? No, they let him finish. Oh, that's they great. They let him finish. Brilliant. It All was right. really good, yeah. He's, right. my, he's my hero. We're going to... Stuart Kirk. We're- <laughs> We're absolutely, we're absolutely going to watch that. I got to find that. Yeah, uh, Michael, what's your, what's your favorite for this week? Hit so me. yesterday morning at six, at six o'clock, I watched a movie. Now my wife is an early riser; she gets up at five thirty to go to work. Okay, so, so I get up early and I watch a movie. That's what I do. Wow! And yesterday I watched Hustle, uh, the new Adam Sandler movie on Netflix. Now, obviously, I'm a huge fan of the Sandman, uh, but his Netflix quality has been pretty, pretty poor. Yeah. So I was very pleasantly surprised. This is a good one. Very pleasantly surprised. He plays a scout for the Philadelphia 76ers. And the, the movie gets a premium because there's a lot of NBA players involved. Right, and right. it was a, a – I really enjoyed it. It was a good sports movie. Excellent. Juancho Hernan Gomez, who I didn't even know was in the NBA, brother of ex-Nick Willie Hernan Gomez, uh, is the main character. And it's great. Really good. Cool. So, so I just want to point out, you started off watching 30-minute shows in bed. Correct. Now you're watching entire movies. Well, what well, time are you starting work roughly? No, 10, no, no. Ten thirty. <laughs> Hang on. I, I started. I started I at six. Ask. I started at six with popcorn or not? I started at six in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> I pause. I press pause at like seven thirty to get my kids up and out of bed, and then I finish it that night. There's no popcorn in bed or anything like no that. No popcorn in bed. No popcorn. <laughs> Very good. All right. uh, I'm going to say business travel is my favorite. I rediscovered that I actually really like it, and I went to Austin, Texas this week for my first. Travel to conference, I think. Uh, I was only there for like a few hours because that's just how I do it. Cool. Uh, but I I like – I flew to Austin. I put together a group of people that either live there or were going to be there, uh, even for unrelated things. Had an amazing dinner uh, at Red Ash. If anybody's looking for a restaur- restaurant – You know, I'm in Austin next week. Go to – I don't even know if you can get in. What are you, I'm, I'm there too next week. What are you doing there? Wait, what are We're you doing? sort of combination seeing clients and uh, sightseeing. Never been to Austin. Oh, Michael's going to watch movies in his bed. <laughs> well, let's. If Wait, I, what are you doing there? I'm going. I'm going. I'm going for eight hours to a wedding. I'm so mad. Oh, wedding. An eight hour wedding. Wow. Yeah, no, I'm perfect. going there like uh, for. I'll be there for less than twenty four hours. Wow. Well, listen. If you can get a table, you might have to eat it at a weird time. Can I drop your name? Will give me a good table? Drop <laughs> my name. Yeah. Okay. Uh, ask for Patrick. Uh, Red Ash Red is Ash. one of the okay. best dinners I've had anywhere in America. 
Oh, cool. I'm telling you. I'm there next week. I'm going to. Yeah, yeah. I need Don't to get an that. open table first, right? Don't do that. Yeah, I'm not like, that who influential. the hell is Josh Brown? Why do people keep telling me about that? <laughs> I'm not that influential. But I got to tell you, it's it's an Italian steakhouse where they're grilling over wood. They're grilling meat. The cows, are, Itali- the cows nice. are Italian? But nice. pastas, steaks. Oh, wow. Uh, look at that. Wood-fired Italian. Dude. Oh, I'm, I'm wow. Telling, I'm okay. telling you. It's it's really, really tough reservation to get. And uh, so, some, somebody I know got it for me. I wouldn't be able to get We're it. We're going to ask of LNG. They'll let you write in. I have absolutely uh, no, no pull. <laughs> yeah. I got a lot of friends there. Let me tell you. I got a lot of friends in Texas. So so the pregame, the pregame for that was at a place called uh, something down low, Dumont's Down Low, which is in the warehouse district in Austin. Um, the warehouse district has all these like exactly what you think, old warehouses that they've converted oh, to okay. either retail stores, restaurants, or bars. Okay. This one is downstairs in the basement, and they say it was a haunted warehouse. Unbelievable bar, great cocktails. Bar, I asked the bartender one question about a drink. He gave me 20 minutes on green chartreuse and forget about it. Anyway, I just love the experience of be, dropping into a city. I've been to Austin a, a million times, but so what? And then the next day, I got on stage with uh, with Rick Edelman talking crypto. Right. I saw people I haven't seen in two years from around the industry. Nice. And it's just nice that that's made a comeback. Yeah, And there are absolutely. things to go to again. Fantastic. So that's, that's, good. My, uh, that's good. That, that's my favorite for this week. Brilliant. Uh, all right. We're going to remind people. We're going to remind people to check out, if you're into financial blogger apparel, check out ironshot.com for the latest from the compound. Did a lot of people go buy stuff last weekend when we ran the sale? Yeah. Pretty good? Yeah. Yeah, okay. a lot of people took advantage of that. We didn't sell out of anything, though. Not that I'm aware That's of. the beauty of drop shipping. Right. Okay. Exactly. All right. Love it. Check out ironshop.com uh, for the latest from The Compound. Don't forget, New Animal Spirits Monday, New Animal Spirits Wednesday, and we're back with an all-new What Are Your Thoughts on Tuesday. And lastly, let's tell everybody where they can follow you, Simon. What are the best places where your stuff can be... Uh, I think we have a well, whole bunch yeah, of links, right? Yeah, at Simon Lack on Twitter. Okay. Our website is sl-advisors.com. Okay. Or you could just Google me. There's not many Simon Lacks on the world. You just Google me. And anyway. you have your own YouTube channel. We do. Okay. We do. You need a, do you have a Duncan? Yes. Do you have a John? Not yet. Okay. Not yet. All right. Good, good luck. These guys are, yeah, yeah. These they, guys they, are, are hard to They look hard like they're well paid, Josh. I don't think I could afford those. They're, gr- they're great at what they do. And your blog, sladvisors.com backslash blog. Or S- just go to sl-advisors.com and the blog is there. It'll it, you'll see it. Uh, okay, and you're writing about not just pipelines and not just energy, interest but- rates as well, right? Because I traded interest rates for many years. Yeah. So all I right. write about the yield curve, Euro dollar futures, Fed policy. I so- read all, I read all your stuff. I think you do a great job. Your books are great. You were amazing on the show today. Jeff you have fun? Well, I had a lot of fun. Okay, you're gonna come back and visit us. If you'll have me back, I'd love to. We will absolutely have you back. Cool. Simon Lack, everybody. Simon Lack, ladies and gentlemen. All right. Uh, Thank you guys so much for listening. Make sure to like and subscribe. We will see you next week. Take us out. Good job. Good warm up. Are you ready to do this for real? What do you think? It doesn't even feel like work. Really? You guys have fun all the time.